0: what's up everybody welcome welcome to the artists of data science happy hour number 97 happy hour number 97 i'm just three away from happy hour number 100 if you all tuned in on my live stream yesterday listen If if you're listening on youtube i mean sorry if you're listening to the podcast go to my youtube check out my most recent live stream which was from yesterday yesterday being thursday september the 15th i did an interview with none other than akira the dawn if you've been listening to any of these podcasts over the last couple of years you know 200 some plus episodes y'all know that akira the dawn has had uh, such a uh, huge positive influence on my life uh through his music um and it was just it was amazing to be able to to sit down and just chat with him uh unique conversation man i don't think y'all will hear anything like that on any other day podcast so uh yeah, that, that's a good one. I'm also doing a bunch of other live episodes coming up, man. I'm getting back into my podcast recording groove. Uh, I've got a few people lined up in the very near future. Yes, should I tell y'all? Should I tell you who's going to be coming on the podcast in the near future? All right, I'll tell you. All right, so next Friday, right, right, next Friday at uh, 10 a.m. Central Time, doing a live stream with Ben Taylor. We got none other than Al Bellamy coming on the show. That's on. Um, 23rd of october uh the 5th of october we're doing megan lou megan Lou's gonna be on the show uh then we got Varun Nair. we're gonna be talking about Varun's book uh that he wrote called breaking stereotypes these are all gonna be live live stream on linkedin live stream on youtube and then released later as podcast episodes as i build my back catalog just because you know that's how i do um But yeah, man, I'm excited to to get in touch with some other friends of mine, um, you know, semi-prominent data scientists that you may or may not know on LinkedIn. Be having all of them come through on the Artists of Data Science podcast because that is what I do. I interview both prominent and semi-prominent data scientists Uh, and also just, you know, a number of authors. There are some great books lined up um, for some people I'll be interviewing uh, one of them is called uh, Restoring Reason. I forgot the author's name. Uh, a books about um, just applying ancient wisdom in a modern context. Another uh, episode I got is a book called Person to Person. And this is a book just about, um, it's actually just this person to person peer economy that is now emerging. Um, and a couple other people. Uh, it'll be great, great conversation. Uh, so I'm excited for that, man. I hope you're all excited. excited. Like, I cannot be, can't be more, more happy to to get back onto this uh, podcast recording tip and it's been so long. It's been like ten months since I've like recorded podcast and the uh the the office is back, the vibes are right and uh I couldn't be more more happy to get back into it. That being said, my monologue is done, y'all. Shout out to everybody in the room. What's going on? Antonio, Antonio, good to see you here again, man. It's been so long. Antonio, hope you're doing well. Vin Fashista, what's up? Al Bellamy, Keith McCormick, Gina Duarte, and of course Russell Willis. Everybody chilling out in the uh, in the in the room without the camera on. What's going on? So okay. Keep the camera off. Shout out to Jason Faridot, uh, Mikiko and Sanker. Um, all right, let's get it popping, man. Anybody got anything they want to open the discussion with? Do let me know, man. If there's any questions, any burning questions, y'all want to kick off uh, the 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 topic with? Do let me know. Uh, I had an interesting question that I was asking like here at the dawn um, during the the, the episode of the yesterday, right? And uh, you know, he's primarily a a creator. He's a music creator, but he does all this stuff through the internet, right? And I just got me wondering, like, you know, if the internet was not around, how would how would your life be different, right? Or you know what? Let's let's ask another question. How about this? Like another thought experiment I was doing was: Who would I have become if my social media outlet of choice when I was in my young twenties um, was something different? For example, Twitter. Right. Like, what if I what if I spend most of my time on Twitter versus like Instagram or Facebook? Because I only really started messing around with Twitter uh, just you know a year ago, and my mind was blown as to how much knowledge and wisdom is going on in in Twitter. And yeah, just the ideas and, and thoughts I could have been exposed to at a much earlier age, uh, how different life would have been. So I'm curious, man. If, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think your life would be like if you had picked another social media drug of choice when you're in your formative years or, um, you know, in the earlier social media. Let's go to Al Bellamy. Let's hear from him. Uh, if anybody else wants to uh, jump in, please let me know. If you got questions, uh, please do let me know. No, I will cue you up. Thank you. Go for Al. You're going to go for the old man in
1: the room. Am I like, they invented the internet my freshman year at Ohio U. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, man, I don't know. I mean, like, especially with social media, like certain to certain avenues seem to sort of appeal to our baser instincts. Um, so it's like, yeah, I don't know if um, if I'd had Instagram around early on that that would have been net negative for me. Um, so, yeah, probably if if I'd had LinkedIn and, and YouTube around, which, you know, both of which I use for relatively positive things. Um, yeah, I think I'd, I'd be further ahead than I am today. Certainly if I'd uh, if I'd start and started upskilling and started you know watching like educational things on youtube a few years earlier um probably could have upskilled a bit quicker on my way out of the marine corps
0: yeah yeah Yeah, you know what's surprising dude like i didn't even know that websites like for example coursera or udemy or udacity like these these type of course like you know websites that have all this knowledge and wisdom i didn't even know this is a thing until i was in my mid-30s and i was like I've been reading textbooks the entire time getting like getting bored as fuck. Yeah. Uh but yeah, that's the trip man. Um let's hear to uh let's hear from uh, Antonio and if anybody else wants to jump in, do let me know. Um if no, you know, if you guys want to chime in on this question, I'd love to hear what you guys say. Just simply use the uh hand raise icon. A, uh, a lack of hand raises will mean that I'll move on to the question that we got from uh Gina. Gina's got a question about pre-trained models. Uh but Antonio, let's hear from you.
2: I mean A couple things come to my mind. I think if I went on Twitter, other than LinkedIn, I think the the writing style would have been a lot different. I go on Twitter and I see all of these like, uh, what is it called? Is it called copy, copyright or something? It's all this concise stuff. So when I went from LinkedIn to Twitter and I have like a, I don't know, I mean, even LinkedIn is short format, but not as short as Twitter, obviously. So trying to turn everything into a thread has been like pretty difficult. I'm like, come on, I just need like three more words. I don't want to start another tweet you know, right now. So it's kind of, um, and I think it's very useful for people who are like the Justin Welches of the world who are pitching ideas and trying to earn money with being a creator. I think that's a very valuable skill set that I am I'm missing. Um, that's That's like the one thing that came to my mind. I think the second thing was from a very young age, I was probably 10 years old, I started. I posted like videos on YouTube. I was doing statistics comparing different creators, but I didn't even know back then that you could actually like make money off of this. I had posted about ten videos, and it was like comparing these different people. And then, you know, people. uh, I remember somebody commented on my thing like, "Oh, well, your date, your like numbers might be wrong, or you're not getting it." You know how people always like like to shit on other people's work. So Mm -hmm. I kind of like. Backed away from that channel. I was, I mean, it was probably too young for it. Um, but I think if I knew that you could actually make money where it would be today, I would have definitely kept going. I think that's the one thing that I would, I would change. I don't. I, I probably wouldn't be anything crazy right now, but it definitely would have a lot more um, followers on you on YouTube, and, and especially because I I love that channel like for learning, like you guys are saying.
0: Yeah. Antonio, thank you. Russ, we got a valid comment here saying maybe it wasn't a thing until your mid-30s talking about those online education courses and stuff. I think you're probably right. That also has something to do with it. Uh, But let's hear from Gina. Then from Gina, we'll go to Keith. If anybody else wants to uh, jump in on this topic, let me know. Or if anybody has a question, whether you're here in the Zoom room, whether you are watching live on LinkedIn, I welcome, or YouTube, I welcome all of your questions, your comments, your concerns, all of them. Uh, Go for Gina.
3: Yeah, so two comments on this topic. Um, I, for one, am very glad social media was not around when I was young in high school, even younger. Um, I think there's too much pressure from it. And of course, I, especially I think for women, there's so much pressure. I mean, it's bad enough with the fashion magazines. You felt like you had to look a certain way. And it was heartening to hear guys, at least some guys say, I don't necessarily want to be with a super skinny girl, but that's but you know, that's what we were uh, kind of that was the message. And I think now with all of these um, social media uh, platforms, there's just so much, I think, psychological risk for young people. And at the same time, if they can learn to navigate it successfully, I think, as we see especially well millennials and especially gen Zs coming of age they they seem to have a certain ease with it that a lot of older people don't. Um, yeah, the other thing is though, uh, somebody mentioned brevity and just putting ideas out there. And the, the one thing that um, coming of age when the internet wasn't a thing, shall we say, <laughs> is that there was a time when if you were gonna publish something, there were a lot of gatekeepers and you just couldn't publish Wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. You can just say whatever you wanted to say. And um, because there were gatekeepers, stuff had to be of a certain quality. There was also a feeling, and I think Antonio, you kind of referred to this a little bit in YouTube, right? Like if you just put something out there, it might be great, but you're going to be subject to a lot of criticism. And at the same time, if you do put something out there that's really good in the current environment, it's um, difficult to. You know, necessarily rise above the noise. So um, the the so the downside of that for those of us who grew up in that era is that we can feel um, quite um, hesitant to put just put start putting stuff out on social media. Um, so I think certainly those who've grown up with it have an advantage. And I see Kostov had just joined, and I know he on a data science happy hour. I don't know, some months ago, maybe had some thoughts on the challenges of a younger person, particularly coming of age with Facebook chats and disagreements and all the rest.
0: Gina, thanks so much. Uh, Let's go to Keith. Uh, Thank you very much, Keith. Uh, By the way, um, if you guys uh, got questions, comments, whatever, please do let me know. I'm monitoring the chat on all platforms. Go for it, Keith.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm one of the older folks here. Uh, two, so I just looked it up, if I'm not mistaken, Internet was 1991, right? Is that the agreed upon birth of the Internet year, give or take? Uh, that was undergrad graduation year for me. <laughs> so this was definitely not, uh, you know, something during my formative year. So um, I just want to comment a little bit on how I ended up being fairly active on LinkedIn, I've been blogging for a while, but I never blogged that consistently. So I I would use Twitter to say, hey, I just wrote a blog post. Because, you know, this is back when they had the character limit. So you couldn't say much more than that. But the thing about Twitter is I never found myself consuming it that much because it would alert you to the fact that there was a link to an article. But no one was kind of sharing their two cents. There wasn't so much room for people to do that other than saying, hey, this is great. Check it out, you know. So I started using LinkedIn, I think mostly because the the LinkedIn learning connection. So naturally, it just felt very natural to say, hey, here's something I did or whatever. Um, But the reason I think I'm on LinkedIn almost every day is because I like consuming it. There's just a lot of good stuff on there. You know, if I spend 30 or 45 minutes on LinkedIn, you know, part of me wants to say, oh, gosh, I got to get started with my day. But I I usually don't look back on that half hour or more and feel that it was time wasted, you know? So I think it's because I'm constantly consuming stuff that I feel that that's, that's the place that I want to be. That's my two cents on that.
0: Thank you very much, Keith. Um, I'm, I'm curious, man. So let's, uh, let's, let's go to Vin. Vin, what, what, back when social media first popped off, I mean, I know for us back then it was like uh like Friendster, MySpace, <laughs> things like that. Um, But what what was your social media kind of drug of choice and how do you think your life would be different if you chose a different social media?
5: I think I had the weirdest path into social media because I started on social media to do professional stuff. Like I never got to, I didn't do the social part of it. I got on Twitter originally to just start Doing uh, talking about data science, talking about analytics and big data and all of that, because there were a whole bunch of creators on there. I mean, we weren't creators back then; we were <laughs> we, we were called many things, and not all of them were nice. So we were all on there uh, talking about big data and trying to get in front of all of the just BS that was out there. And that's kind of what jumped me onto Twitter was being able to refute some of the garbage that was out there. And so I got really used to, all I need is this short 128 character, you know, and then here's an article underneath it. And that's really what it was. It was sharing other people's content and adding just a little bit of a blurb to, here's what you needed to know, here's like a little bit of context that you needed. And that was my relationship. That was the first relationship I had with social media, was using it professionally. And then started looking at it as a personal connection tool. I tried Facebook and I just went, this is dumb. I don't want this. (laughs) I didn't want anything to do with it. But now I have so many personal connections, like friends that I know. And the only way we would have ever met was with social media. So I went backwards. I still don't have a Facebook account, but I use Twitter. Like I actually have friends on Twitter. I have a couple of alt accounts so I can be myself and be human and you know i got introduced to reddit 4 years ago i think reddit's awesome i think that's the future of social media when you look at things like reddit i think there's going to be some sort of an evolution of reddit to something that's more i don't know not tame but i mean more structured than reddit is right now and i think that's where we go with social media because it's so much it's so much richer the communities are so much deeper the connections that are made are so much better and I think that's the that's the cool thing about where social media is going now is we literally went to the absolute worst place possible on social media and people realized they didn't like it for the most part. And then now we're going and figuring out what's good social media, what's healthy social media, it, it, which, which is kind of interesting because when we first had the internet, everyone was talking about this thing that was going to connect people. And it wasn't until MySpace showed up and then Facebook, and then Fark. I'm old. Fark was a website that was like a message board, free form message board, uh, troll of all, like Redditors, the old Redditors all started there. That's where they learned how to be Redditors is on Fark and on other types of web message boards like that. And I, you know, I think we've finally gotten to the point where we understand how to use it to connect to each other. And we're not just using it to advertise to each other. And we're not talking at each other. So I think that's where we're going. And it's really interesting, you know, from a career standpoint, I don't think anyone's career will be the same in two to three years as the type of career that I had before social media came out. I just, I don't think it's possible anymore.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see more just niche communities where people are, who are just interested, you know, like, like if you think about 10,000, 50,000 people, like that sounds like a lot of people, but that's such a small fraction of humanity. But if you get like ten, fifty thousand 50,000 people together, all interested in a, a small topic, uh, imagine the wonderful conversations and just joy they'll be able to bring into their lives from that. Um, so we got a couple of hands raised up. We got a queued up question from Gina that we'll get to. Keith, there's a question waiting for you on LinkedIn that I want you to start noodling about. Uh, also, man, like if anybody has any insight to share about the Ethereum merge uh I'd love to hear about that. If anybody has any insight, please do let me know. Um, but let's go in the uh, the order of hands raised. We'll go to Serge, then Mark, then Co-stub, Uh, Then we'll hit Gina's question. Then we'll hit the question from Reem uh, Ayubi that she has for Keith. And then we'll uh, you know hopefully somebody can enlighten me on what the hell the Ethereum merge is all about. Go for Serge.
6: Hi. Yeah. Um, yeah. My social media is also uh, history is. I'm all, I've always been late, uh, adopter to like the major sites you see today. Um, you know, even, even if I joined early, I didn't become active till later in each one of them because I'm kind of apathetic to the idea. Um, and strangely enough, LinkedIn, I opened my account, like, I don't know, like 12 years ago or something like that a long time ago, but I didn't become really active on it till like four years ago. Um, so it's just one of those cases, but LinkedIn is actually the closest, I think, to what my best kind of uh, engagement with social kind of sites are. Because early on, if you wanted to do social media kind of things, you had chat rooms, you had forums, um, and, and you had uh, you know other kinds of sites like that. I fail to remember, but there were just a ton of sites where you could engage with people uh, that formed part of a community, and oh, blogs as well. You do comment on blogs, so it was like really disconnected. It wasn't all in one place. And uh, actually, I I built a social media site back then. Um, you know, before it was kind of a term. Um, it it had a lot of the precursor stuff that you would expect from a social media site. Uh, it was for electronic music events um, and And the thing is, whenever social media sites as they exist today were created, like general purpose things that were not about communities but about connecting like you know high school classmates and like you know your parents you know and and their family, your families and everything and, you know the entire community. Um, that kind of sucked because like to me like the discussions that i would have in forums those are like kind of discussions i would have you know with you know classmates from high school and you know my cousins i it's just not necessarily the case but like linkedin is like the closest i've seen in social media sites to that kind of discussions i would have back in the day and that's why i've, I've come to like it
0: Yeah. It is the, I can literally attribute everything good that has happened in my life in the last four years to LinkedIn. The time that I put into the platform, uh, like, like I've literally, uh, four, four to five X my salary since 2018. Uh, I like have met so many cool people, Started so I probably, doing all this crazy stuff. I wouldn't have been able to do it, uh, for, if it wasn't for this, for this platform. Um, thank you, Serge. Uh, by the way, I remember like this one, um, uh, forum that I was a part of, I think this was back in 2008, 2007, 2008, when I was well, maybe 2009 when I was like studying being actuary. It was called the Actuarial Outpost. And that's where I used to hang out whenever I get stuck on, uh, you know, problems. Practice problems, we'd be working through it, async. That was that was a cool experience. Search, thank you very much. Let's go to Mark. Let's go to CoSTub. Then after Mark and Co-Stub, we're gonna go to Gina for her question on a pre-trained model. Then after Gina's question on the pre-trained model, we're gonna go to Reem's question that she has for Keith. That's talking about PLS compared with covariance-based SCM and Bayesian networks. That sounds like a dope ass causal inference type of uh type of conversation. So I'm here for it. Mark, go for it.
1: What's up? Uh, so I think the question was like, what was the first kind of social media kind of got onto? For me, it was my space, you know, who are your top five friends? Very important decisions to signal out to your network um, at that time. And then Facebook became the main thing kind of for me in high school and early, early college. But one thing I think hasn't come down this conversation yet, and I feel like I completely missed out on, and I wish I did more was uh gaming, like online gaming like people playing Call of Duty or Halo or those different things, the amount of close ties and like very close relationships people made during that, I like completely missed out on because I was like, I was just like too socially anxious to like talk to people online like that. (laughs) And so, but I I remember like I'm ready. I I hear people talk about like, yeah, I played this game for five years straight every single day and we finally met in person and like best of friends, right? And so I think there's like something really special to that where even though it's that this mass reach kind of like Facebook, showing up and meeting people from across the world and doing a shared task that's like really fun to do, there's something really powerful in that. I think that's something like we might take for granted, like how crazy that is that like we had a time span even now where you can literally link up with anyone in the world and play games and form these deep relationships um, and not even see their face it's just a, a character and listening to them in your headphones and maybe cussing at them yeah. and so i think that's something really cool that i completely missed out on that i wish i got more into um i guess i could get into it now but i, I just don't play video games enough but i think it's so cool maybe uh carly might be a great person to to talk to about that because she's a call of duty
0: yeah that it, that was one of the first games where i started uh, playing and building community like you described and again this was back probably 2009 10 uh, the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two, we had like clans, had like this clan, and then I remember once I had a clan that was the same name as another clan. Then I had to go battle the leader to to claim ownership of the clan. Actual tag, it was yeah, it was wild, man. Back in the days, uh, Mark, thank you so much. Let's go to uh, of All
7: right, uh, let me cut this off with the most cynical thing I have ever said on one of your podcasts. Um,
0: See, also so said that last week. A while.
7: I know, I know. I'm just going to pile it on and I'm going to top myself each time, right? Um, so Oscar Wilde, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. The fact is social media is society's mask, right? That's why you've got anonymity. That's why you've got Reddit as how Reddit is, right? Um, we're slowly lifting that mask because we're connecting everything together. We're connecting different platforms together, different the same login in 10 different places now. So you can kind of start to lift the mask if you look deep enough. But yeah, still got the opportunities for a master
0: there. thank you so much. All right. Let's go to uh a great discussion, y'all. Thank you so much. Um I just love how the you know conversation question is more of a one answer and, and it's it's just you know one question and answer trails and stuff. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you all. Let's go to uh, Gina's question. Gina had a question about uh, pre-trained models for a, a particular use case that she has. Gina, go for it.
3: Thanks. Um, yeah, so I am working actually with a <clears throat> nonprofit uh, coding organization and um, we are using the uh, starting off with the TACO data set, so Trash Annotations in Context. And the idea is to use um, computer vision uh, models to help identify um, trash in, um, in images. And some of you may have heard of Literati and um, I believe that's some of what they do, but this um, use case is, um, completely open source, um, giving people the ability to upload batches of photos. Um, uh, the, actually, the I can tell you, I can put it in the chat, Trash AI, you can go uh, check it out if you would like. I think it's TrashAI.org. Um, <laughs> I see something in the chat from Gecko. Uh, OnlyFans account, okay, that's, uh, I won't go into that there. Um, <laughs> anyway so um through a chain of events so so this group kind of came about they came to this project um trying to solve this problem of how do we identify what trash is um reported by just users people general public and where it's located um here in california caltrans uh one of the sponsors of this is Uh, His day job is with Caltrans and has to do with um, there's a lot of money now, thank goodness, um, being allocated towards uh, beautification projects in California, Uh, especially during the pandemic. It seems like litter and trash just got so much worse. And already in their first year, right, they've um, collected over a million cubic yards of trash across the state. And I don't know if that's over and above what they typically do, but in any case, a tool like this, like Trash AI or something similar, could be very useful for municipalities, for community organizations. You know, anybody who's interested in identifying where uh, trash is located and litter hotspots and all the rest. Now, um, in their efforts to kind of get this thing kicked off, they found on Kaggle that I think there was a challenge at one point, and so some people had used YOLO v5 as a pre-trained model to, um, to, and they used the TACO dataset to train the model and come up with various annotations. And uh, what we're finding is that the accuracy isn't great, even if you run it on lots and lots of epochs. I should also add the TACO dataset. I think it's a total of 3000 images, I'm not 100% sure might only be 1500 so it's not lots so another down the road use case is to allow users to upload photos annotate them etc etc um so with that preamble uh, my question is and think about what a photo with litter might be it might be you know the height of a person taking the photo five feet up or whatever that is and the litter is pretty prominent in there Or it could be a shot, you know, where litter is 10 to 20 feet off in the distance. One eventually could imagine aerial photos. So then in those cases, the litter would be a much smaller, um, you know, portion of a photo. And so I'm looking for any advice people have of other pre-trained models or even Yolo V5, I think, is it Roblox? I can't remember who they're working with. to do, to improve upon YOLO v5 or as some sort of an additional tool to use with it. And so, um, I see Costas put something in the, the comments there, but um, I guess more broadly, I don't know if, if certain models that are out there like ResNet or, um, oh, what's the other one now? I'm forgetting one of the other big name models if those are general purpose, even for something like this, or are there particular models or approaches that people would recommend for this particular type of problem?
0: Let's go to Costa, uh, resident computer vision expert. And then uh, Serge, if you're around, if you wanna chime in on this, I'd be happy to hear from you. Anybody else who's got experience with computer vision, uh, please do feel free to just raise your hand to come into the queue. Costa, go for it if you're still here. Yes, you are.
7: Yeah, I, I, I am. Um, so today's been total deer in headlights day for me. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah. So I guess you've got 3,000 um, you 3, images. You've got a variety of representations of what you're looking for, right? Um, the first thing really that I look at is how do I go about, and, and it's a bit harder with images, right, is how do I go about categorizing what kind of images do I have? You said distance is one of the things, like scale is one of the things. Can I get some idea of how big, um, what's the distribution of tiny things off in the distance versus big things up, up close, right? Um, understanding that is going to help you try to improve the data set, either through augmentation or through whatever other means, right? So, how can you understand that first? Understand the nature of what's in the data set, what's not in the data set that you might be missing. Um, And then are there ways that you can augment and improve your data set so that you can like cover for that? You might only have a few examples of things off in the distance that are clear, right? Um, Or what if all the trash in that system is, you know, you've only got 3000 pictures. I can't imagine that's huge deal of variety unless you're literally pointing to a garbage dump. Right. Um, So yeah, it's really about how can you take what you have and improve that data set to Um, you know, maybe synthetically cut and paste, cut mix, all sorts of different approaches in in, in computer vision, right? Um, See if you can build up data sets that are somewhat realistic to make that a bit bigger um, or a bit more balanced in terms of the situations Mm -hmm. you're going to see at least. Uh, That's a starting point, I guess. Uh, You've got a number of different models that you can try, but really, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, whether you're talking Detectron, whether you're talking ResNet, uh, whether you're talking YOLO v5 or any of the YOLO family or any of the YOLO, we are not actually part of the family YOLO uh, models. Um, I do not know of these. No. So, so there's, YOLO, there's, there's YOLO, which is the Joe, the Joe Redmond one, right? And YOLO v2 is also part of the family. Uh, I think YOLO v3 was the first Ultralytics one, if mm. I'm
4: remembering was, right.
7: Yeah.
0: yeah, I think it was. Is that right?
7: Yeah, yeah. And then YOLO v4 was then part of the original family again. And then YOLO v5 is kind of probably one of the better um, better performing ones out of, the, out of the whole lot. But that's, again, Ultralytics. And it's really easy to serve. It's really easy to pull down from Hub. They made the usability for that ex- extremely good. Um, there's now v6 and v7 that have come from totally different uh, people and don't necessarily actually use the same structure as YOLO. So they might perform differently. There's plenty that you could do to experiment with different um, different models, uh, but really uh, start with your data set, start with exploring how you can make that more representative of what you're likely to see in the real world, right? Um, the other side of it is essentially, um, what, what can you do in, in terms of learning features from pre-trained models right can you pre-train instead of training a model from scratch obviously if you get something that's been pre-trained on the whole image net you know um data set that at least gives you some idea of a baseline of general objects gives you baseline of general weights where do you start to retrain uh where do you start to retrain from do you just retrain the whole thing uh, on top of it or are you saying okay i'm going to freeze the weights at this layer, and then continue to uh, retrain up to a particular layer. There's experimentation that you can do with that, and that will improve or make your performance worse. The other thing you can do is if you find that it's, I mean, this comes to experimentation, but if you find that up to a certain layer is really good at developing the features that you need, but then after that, it starts, you know, looking at too many cats and dogs, then maybe you can essentially retrain entirely from that layer onwards. So there's a bunch of different approaches you can use. Depends how long you have. Depends how uh, how much money you have for GPU compute, and depends on uh, really how accurate do you need it to be, right? Um, remember that the nature of trash is transient. So yeah. really, as long as you can tell someone that hey, there is some trash within this, you know, ten foot radius over here. Mm-hmm. I, you could quite literally turn around and say, hey, um, go send someone or something (coughs) robot um, to go pick it up, right? So it doesn't necessarily need to be a detector. The other option is a trash or no trash uh, classifier, right? What if you do something like that? The trick is you need to get your patch sizes of that image small enough that you're not worrying about... um, overfitting to things like, oh, there's sidewalk. There's a lot of trash is mm-hmm. next to sidewalk, right? So there's, there's considerations yeah. like that in the real world that you got to think of. Um, but maybe that's an alternate approach. Is like I, my, my question is, is trash detection at a distance actually useful to anyone at all, right? It, it just becomes a fundamental question. What are you trying to do with it? Right. In my mind, either you're saying at a distance, hey, in this 10-foot radius, there is some trash here. Someone go deal with it. That would be my first thing is saying, hey, there is trash. There is no trash. Then you send a robot along that gets up close and personal, gets into that 10-foot radius and starts scanning the area. Then you're within five feet, four feet, and you're basically looking at how do I detect it? And at that point, your perspective is no longer top down. It's going to be front on for two reasons. One, you need to be close to the ground anyway to pick up the trash. Uh, Drones are unstable closer to the ground. So... You're probably not going to be wanting to use a drone for that anyway. Second thing is drones have really, really powerful rotors. So even if you did get a drone to come down and try and pick the trash up, 90% of the time the trash is going to get blown away because you got rotors. Right. So from a practicality standpoint, you're probably sending something on wheels, right? So you can assume that the perspective shift is going to happen. So I, I don't know, I would approach the problem a little bit differently. But I guess that doesn't really answer your question in terms of learning about this data set and all that. But yeah. Well
3: no that that's really helpful. Um and so there are several suggestions, and I might have to listen to the podcast again to capture all of them. And also Nikiko put in the the comments about data augmentation. Yes, absolutely. And I I think, you know, I'm fairly new to this group. It's all volunteers. There's, I don't think there's much budget to speak of. Um, And, you know, up until recently, I think primarily they've had coders, and one coder has just done an amazing job. Of doing the front end and back end to get the thing so that it can upload batch photos and and basically he does it with browser caching and so they they are managing to do very well not um, burdening the the AWS I guess S three bucket uh, so that's can fantastic. I
7: just, can I just sure. ask you? That? Is this in the context of a is this in the context of like a personal project or is this in the context of a, a work project that we that you're trying to work on?
3: Yeah, it's a work project, but I'm a volunteer with this group, but I just think it's really awesome. Yeah, so it could, so imagine one use case is um, Caltrans, you know, so a Department of Transportation or municipality or county um, trying to identify where is their trash, what kind of trash is it, so A, they can go out and pick it up um, more efficiently, and B, they can identify what's, what is that content, and so how might they target Let's say public education programs and the like. So, to your point, while you may possibly have drones potentially going over rights of way, taking images, it it would be picked up in in probably as far as the bulk of the benefit by you know highway crews and the like. But you could also imagine, uh, in fact, there's a the group sponsoring it, and I don't know if they're actually giving a certain amount of funds or just brought it to the group to work on, but um, they're seeking to reduce plastic pollution. And so it wouldn't only be a potential use case for let's say Caltrans. Um, So that's just a bit of an overview.
0: Kostub, go for it.
7: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, Look, and, and there's another complication there is that drones within areas near transportation and things like that is quite difficult from a legal perspective, right? Uh, so it's quite unlikely that you'd be using that anyway. You're probably looking at traffic cameras. You're probably looking at uh, cameras on other, you know, mobile equipment that already exists uh, within the system on trains and things like that, um, purely because you can't fly that close to infrastructure and people, right? Um, actually, I, I don't know what the laws are in USA, but that's what it's like in Australia, right? I'm pretty sure most countries just copied CASA's laws anyway. So Australia was ahead. Um <laughs> So in, in this, like everything we go saying in the chat um, is just so solid in terms of like creating synthetic, uh, synthetic data and data augmentation and things like that, right? Um, that is the cheaper way of bulking up your data set fast as opposed to uh, annotating uh, new images because that yeah. means having to collect new images in the first place, um, very, very expensive way to do this. Um, annotations can cost you both from a platform like how much you're paying for an annotation platform as well as finding cheap labelers and finding good labelers that actually get honestly get it done the way you do it so yeah um i think mikiko's got some great ideas in there i think we want i want to hear from her actually
0: mikiko if you are there do shout out you know I'm, i'm also curious this is actually a question that was asked um I you know, did an a m a session last week with uh might have been two weeks ago I can't remember but it was with uh, some of the experts over at desi and then matt McFarlane, uh who's uh who who was asking a question in there I thought it was an interesting question he he's asking about the use of like um you know things like stable diffusion to generate training data um would that work how what would that be like you know instead of getting real synthetic data we could type in a prompt and generate variations of the type of data that we want um i thought that was an interesting question but um makiko if you're uh yes there you are go for it um yes good comments talk to us about your comments
8: yeah i guess i was just saying that um in terms of like uh so like andrew Ng, he had this talk like two years ago about like data-centric ai versus like model-centric ai and I thought it was interesting because a lot of times, like our first sort of um and it's it's not like a wrong intuition necessarily, but our, our first like I think steps as data scientists or ML engineers a lot of times is is change the model architect. Well, it's like do feature engineering and then change the model architecture. Um but his talk was kind of like getting at the fact that like a lot of times there's just things you can do to like additionally add to your data set that will like get you far greater returns um, as opposed to changing like the mall architecture itself. So um, like the two suggestions that like I've been given when working with computer vision projects is one, um, try to do um, like data augmentation. So for example, if you have like images of like objects or items, like try to deform them in some way or change like rotate them, change the shape, all that good stuff. Um, so like from a single image that's already like, you know, annotated and all that you could potentially get like 10 like images out of there, maybe even do like a dirty filter on it where it's like, you know, like little Instagram yellow snapshot, uh, vignette (laughs) style or, or what have you. So there's a lot of things where ways you can kind of add there. Um, another option is using like weak labeling, um, uh, there's like a, a tool snorkel AI is very famous for that there's other ones too um, and then an- another option is also to um, either scour uh, well connect with like companies for example like unsplash uh, so whenever you like look for an image to add to your medium article or what have you uh, most of those images they would have actually already had the meta meta tags in there so there are also companies that offer those sort of services where if they provide you with the metadata tag, um, that could be another way. Um, and then, uh, another option as well is, uh, honestly Kaggle is great. Like people are constantly putting up their own, like data sets. Um, like the ones I've used for some fashion recommender projects, um, like they have like five or six of them where it's like thousands of images each. Um, so you can find ways to like, find data sets of like other objects that you could then sort of like co-opt to add there um, so I would yeah like I would explore those options because if you think about it with like a, a model architecture you could almost just do like a very quick swap and swap out and and you'll see that like more, like other model architectures they might only get you an incremental like one two percent lift and that might not be good enough right for the kpi for um, how the mall operates. So those are just like some suggestions. Um, I always like not spending or giving money to AWS or any of the cloud vendors, so I'd be cheap like that. Um, But yeah, I I would try those out.
0: Mikiko, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's move on to the question. For, uh, hopefully, Gina, that was some good answers there. Uh, let's move on to the question yeah. from Reem. I see Reem joined us from LinkedIn. She had a question for Keith, uh, and I'm, I'm sure Vin might be interested in this question too, given you, both you guys are interested in, in causal inference. Uh, Reem, how are you doing?
9: Good, thank you. Can you hear me?
0: Yep, loud and clear. Uh, you have a question. Uh, that was a good question. I'd love to hear more about it. Go for it.
9: Sure. Uh... I'd like to um, give you a little background. So, I'm switching from academia to industry and trying to see where I fit. And so, I've been taking Keith's courses uh, to understand the language and how things translate. Uh, And so, that's been super interesting, great courses. And I um, started to wonder how some tools that I use relate to uh, Keith's uh, um, uh, material that he's teaching because we use statistics but machine learning has a slightly different set of uh, vocabulary and where is it the same where is it different and so um, uh, let's see so for my uh, dissertation, and also before that, I've been using uh, structural equation modeling. Using uh, Smart PLS is the tool, but the approach is uh, partial uh, least squares. So the reason I went with that is because of modeling uh, the latent variables as formative and. Uh, In other fields, a formative variable is called causal, sometimes index maybe, (laughs) but with the index, (laughs) I think everything gets thrown in there. Whereas when it's a formative construct, uh, you see each, um, each one of the indicators separately, modeled separately. So anyways, I'm trying to figure out is it considered um, good enough to understand, uh, sorry, to call it causal inference uh, in the sense of uh, Judea Pearl's uh, approach. Um, But then, you know, I discovered the Bayesian uh, networks. (laughs) And I think that's a super interesting approach to try as well with the data. So basically my question is, how is it related? Is it used? Have you seen it used uh, in industry and uh, can one call it causal inference? Does that, am I summarizing things well enough? Uh, Well, there's
4: a, (laughs) <laughs> well, well, there's a number of interesting issues. So, I, I think what's uh, let me see if I'm I'm clear on the big picture. One of the big pic- picture questions is: as you shift from academia to industry, would in, would the two with those two uh, tribes, so to speak, have somewhat different preferences, perhaps, and what they find persuasive? You know, I think that's that's also kind of in your question, right? And yeah. then I think. Then, then I think you also have a, a more specific question about given a particular project that you're working on now, which one possibly is the better fit to the problem, right. SEM or Bayesian, right?
3: Yeah. yeah.
4: <clears throat> so let me see the the if I can't give the best background context in about 45 seconds or a minute here. So the um, the course that Reem is, um, is talking about, and of course, thanks for checking out the course, started as what it was originally going to be is I got, I've always been intrigued with uh, some software called Beja Lab, which is software for doing Bayesian networks. So I said, well, you know, I'm going to try to figure out how to put a course together. And part of it was, and we've, a lot of us as um, content producers have done this. It's like, okay, if I, if I draw a line in the sand and I put on my calendar that I'm going to, Teach how to use the software, I've got to get up to speed on it too. Right. So, we've, we've all done that. So, that was part of the motivation. So, then I sat down to say, okay, what would people need to know before they really get Bayesian networks? You know, and what would they need to know to know that? And what would they need to know? What would be the prerequisite to that? And working my way back. Well, the list was, was a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. So, it ended up becoming like a two part course. The next thing you know, the course that you found, Reem, is basically a five hour prerequisite list of list of prerequisite topics to get people ready for vision networks right so given that the basic class of problems we're talking about is a way to systematically say something like a predicts b predicts c and hopefully in a way that you could convince somebody there's some causality going on so in terms of the two tribes question i would say that for the academic audience probably SEM is going to be the more persuasive because, you know, academics love their p-values, you know, so, so you're going to have goodness of fit tests and things like that are just more consistent with what they're used to. Now, I will say up front here, um, claim some ignorance on the difference between partial least squares SEM in this context and regular SEM, you know, I'm familiar with partial least squares and I'm familiar with SEM, but Doing PLS, SEM is something I haven't tried, right? So, uh, but I don't think we have to go down that rabbit hole, you know, to address the question in terms of which would be more persuasive. I think for academics, uh, probably the SEM would be more so. The other thing that I would say is from the brief description that I saw, it seems like you have latent variables. And of course, by latent variables, we mean something that you're not measuring directly. So you might ask somebody five questions and you'll know this ream, but to help everybody understand the context here, if they're not familiar with it, you might ask a battery of questions that are trying to get anxiety, you know, and, um, you might, uh, say something like, uh, if someone's experiencing anxiety at, at work, are they more likely to have more turnover? Are they more likely to leave that job and go to another job or something like that? Right. So, In the SEM model, you have this variable anxiety, but it's not measured directly. It's measured indirectly by the battery of questions. So it's kind of like factor analysis and regression in a blender, right? So that's what's going on with SEM. But again, it has a lot of these elements that academics like. On the Bayesian network side, I think what's interesting about that option is I think in industry, I think a number of you would probably agree, Bayesian's kind of, you know, hot Right now. And I think it would be hot in some academic circles too, but it's increasingly embraced. I think it's going through kind of a renaissance. And the other thing I would say about that is that Judea Pearl is big on this idea of counterfactuals. What if you made a different decision? Uh, one of the examples I have in the courses that you probably recall is what if we didn't buy the Super Bowl ad? What would our revenue have been if we didn't buy the Super Bowl, you know, ad, right? That's a really nice trick, which I think is persuasive to what management wants to see, because they're all about, all about making the should we have chosen A or should we have chosen B? Give me a sense of what my what the what the road not taken would have been. I think the road not taken argument is more persuasive to management in an industrial setting, uh, in an industry setting than p-values would be. Especially when it's the weird p-values you see in SEM, which are you know you want it to be above .05 because if it's below 0. .05, you're rejecting the, the null hypothesis that it uh, you know that it fits and the whole the whole craziness of of, of that you know. Um, so I, so my initial reaction would be is that um, because you have latent variables, I think going with SEM was probably the right thing to do. And since you were an academic setting at the time, I doubly think that it was the right thing to do. I don't know whether or not you have a scenario that could work with a counterfactual. But if you did, that's why I would be intrigued to see what what Bayesian networks might be able to do for you, is if you could articulate a counterfactual that you thought was interesting. But the latent traits make me think you were better off in SEM. And just one final comment. The reason that these two seem to be in this cage match at the end of the course... (laughs) Is that at the end of all this time and meeting all these prerequisites, there was only so much time. So I figured, well, what we're going to be, what are the ones that, that I can explain in a rel- relatively briefly that would seem like two interesting options that people might want to pursue further. So I did a very basic SEM example on a, uh, you know, on a very basic Bayesian network. I mean, these are very short examples. But um, some others reem have uh, commented that they enjoyed the course, but they said, wow, I hope you weren't trying to imply that these were the only two choices. You know, and they're not, of course, right? There's there's a bunch. So, um, but I would love to hear what others have to say about all that.
0: Keith, I got to make time to go through that course of yours, at least skim through it, come up with some questions. And once, uh, uh, once I do, definitely we're going to have a deeper podcast episode conversation on that. Uh, Vin, any insights here? I know this is something that you're big on uh, or, you know, or, or any follow-up questions or anything.
9: Yeah, I, I would uh, mention that with uh, PLS SEM, the p-value thing is uh, like normal. If you get a p-value okay. below <laughs> 0.05, it is a good fit. And so it works uh, differently from kind of uh that it's called covariance based so that's how we distinguish between the two covariance based sem is the one you mentioned in your course and it has a lot more restrictions uh, and assumptions that should be uh, respected than pls uh, sem pls sem is uh, good with small size uh, samples, uh, not that small, but it doesn't require a huge sample size. And um, it's uh, very forgiving in terms of assumptions, and normality and that kind of thing. And um, it is, it allows a different way of modeling these latent constructs. So it's pretty Practical in that sense,
4: you, but you reminded me another question. I think was, would would folks be convinced of causality from PLS SEM as opposed to right. regular covariance based SEM? Mm-hmm. I don't. I can't think of. I can't think of any reason that um, somebody that's comfortable with SEM would be persuaded by conver- covariance based SEM and not PLS. And I feel comfortable saying that even though I haven't played around with PLS, SEM, right? However, there are some folks that just in general don't think you can prove causality with anything, you know? And if you're an SEM fan and you run into that kind of critique, you know, that someone says that you're going beyond what your data supports because they seem to be making this, you can never prove causality argument. Then I really like the article that um, Judea Pearl wrote with Ken Bolin, if I'm remember, remembering right. It's called something like seven myths mm-hmm. about causality and SEM or something like that. I said it in the course, but that, that would be one that I would, if anyone's familiar with those two topics, I think you would enjoy that that article. It's basically saying what, what kind of critiques do people make about SEM in general and how they would answer those critiques. So again, it's some kind of seven, I think it's seven myths, could be eight myths you know, but it's myths about, myths about SEM and causality by Pearl and Bolin.
9: I'm looking forward to reading that article, just downloaded yeah. it. Um Hartree, do I have another minute to, to say something about causality?
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um And, <laughs> okay. and uh, Vin's also into this stuff too. So Vin, if you want to chime in, jump on the discussion, do let me know and uh, go for it, Rim.
9: Okay, great. So, if, if we want to prove causality, there are a few things that you went over at the beginning of the course, Keith. Uh, one is randomness. Another is uh, the time sequence of events, uh, right? And then yeah. um, another is, uh, help me out if <laughs> I'm blanking out a bit here. Uh, but uh, uh, so the experimental design. So that's a factorial design, for example, which, is, which comes from experimentation and so on. So you can set these things up with the research design to get at causality with SEM. So depending on when you collect your data, how you collect your data, when you put your interventions into the, the process, all of these things can come together to uh, develop a causal model it's like you said not just the data speaking for itself but the whole logic and the design behind the the research study or um, the analysis that we're doing it all comes together to uh, create a causal argument so that's what I wanted to say about that. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you so much for inviting me to come on and uh, have this discussion. I really appreciate it. My research was on social media, by the way, and the yes. impact of social media on well-being. So we ah. could always explore that at some time could, if you Could like. you
4: give could you give Ar- ring Could you give everybody one example of a latent trait in your research, just so that they can kind of picture?
9: Sure. Um, Well, I can uh, give you a couple uh, very briefly. So, for example, perceived usefulness of a software. My research was about social media. I asked about Facebook specifically, and it had nothing to do with uh, the company Facebook. So uh, do you find Facebook useful? And there is a validated measure that measures Uh, perceived usefulness from the technology acceptance model and then uh, one that I developed myself for the study, I had to, uh, was perceived Facebook functionality. So, what do people perceive as a functionality of Facebook? And so I had to do a whole uh, a qualitative portion of the study based on literature and then interviews and uh, developed items for that. And I had many, many items that uh, split into different dimensions. And so for example, uh, can you, I can make friends on Facebook. Yeah and it would be on a Likert scale, I agree uh, to, I disagree. And I can uh, meet someone I've never met before on Facebook. Uh, Again, Likert scale, I agree to, uh, uh, I disagree, that kind of thing. So all of those can be uh, factor analyzed, put grouped into latent uh, traits uh, or latent variables and then put into the structural equation model that way. Does that answer the question?
4: Yeah, no, I just wanted to give, a, give everybody a little bit of a flavor, how you might have multiple sure. survey items that together are you know one latent trait.
9: Yeah, yeah, and uh, we would have an idea of what, how, what sort of factor structure it will uh, sort into, but the factor analysis, the exploratory phase, would put them into those factors using uh, a machine learning algorithm. And then uh, the, the second part of the study with a new sample would confirm whether that factor structure uh, stays or if it's not valid, and we go, go back to the drawing board.
0: Thank you very much Reem Ben any, any awesome. insight or comments here. Uh, I know this is something that Vin writes heavily about on his uh, newsletter, Sareem. So if you're interested in more, definitely check out Vin's newsletter.
4: I would love. I would to would just hear- say, yeah. Oh, sorry, good. I'm just gonna say I would love to hear more comments on it. I would. I would really enjoy that.
5: Yeah, I think what's because Keith pretty much covered more than I know completely about Castle, <laughs> about the question that you ask, but. What's interesting about causal is no matter what you say, no matter what answer someone would give to your question, someone else would disagree. And you could have a a complete discussion where both people could very easily support themselves being right, which is where we are in causal right now, especially when you talk about combining it with machine learning approaches. We're not in a place where we have certainty. We're in a place where a question like yours is almost philosophical in some cases, because like I said, we're when I see Judea Pearl arguing with, you know, multiple other people that are smarter than I'll ever be, and they are both making legitimate points and they're both, you know, it's that's the place that we're at. And the reason why I wanted to throw in a comment is because when you get into the business setting, no one in machine learning really has a strong grasp. On data on the data science connection to causal. It's something that's being worked out. You have companies that are finally publishing frameworks like Microsoft and Amazon have great frameworks that they've just recently published, the DUI framework where, or it's got a new name now, PIY, sorry, not DUI, PY, Um, where they're collaborating on it together. And Amazon came at it from one completely different direction than Microsoft came at it. But they are complementary to each other. And you could see from their work. And if you go to Microsoft's website on Pywai, there it's worth reading because you'll hear Amazon and Microsoft's approaches contrasting each other as far as the original need. And I think that's what's important to read there. It's probably not going to be a whole lot of information for you, but you're going to hear Amazon needed diagnostics. Amazon needed that diagnostic causal portion of it to figure out what was going on with something as complex as AWS. You know, if we make this change, what would the implications be? That's kind of important, but for them, it's more something slowing down. Why? What went wrong? And so they were looking at it as a diagnostic use case. And then they would provide that information to smart people, engineers, who could solve the problem. And then the engineers would pass their solution back to the model and the model would say, yes, you probably will solve this problem or no, we don't, you know, there may be other issues and you can see what they're doing is they've got a smart person who can make that decision, who can figure out what the fix should be, but the complexity is really what went wrong and what am I going to do, uh, you know, or what am I going to do to the system when I introduce the fix? And so I think those are the things that are going to be interesting for you since you're making the transition in. Because in academia, you're really asked to do something so much more rigorous than we are in the business world. Because when you look at the way that AWS has implemented their causal framework, it would get torn to pieces in an academic setting. But for that engineer who's got to figure out what went wrong, It is a perfectly legitimate approach because it's mostly right. That's all they need. They'll figure it out from there. And so, you know, the types of questions you're asking right now are very, very rigorous. And you will end up backing off from that level of rigor because the business doesn't need it. The business needs are actually a lower threshold of certainty. And so that would be the piece that I would say with causal You know, you're asking questions that will get, you know, complete disagreement across three different spectrums, two of them in causal, causal research, one of them in the AI version of causal trying to integrate machine learning and do causal discovery and those sorts of methodologies. And so when you ask those questions, be ready, you'll get three different responses and they'll all be very hard to differentiate between who's right and who's wrong. And in the end, the methodology is very important, but that level of certainty isn't so much important.
9: Thank you. That's very interesting to hear. And this is, I think, where the the exercise is going to be, how to back off the rigor enough to make it into industry and make sense of what I need to do.
0: Yeah, I think the important thing is like, you know, you're not trying to gain marks on an exam and and up the the marks on an exam, right? You're trying to you know like make some more money, and it's interesting because sometimes you need to get the C level grade to maximize returns. Uh, I'm trying to make an analogy; it's probably not a good one. But anyways, Keith, go for it.
4: Uh, and I I couldn't uh I couldn't agree more with what you were just talking about. And you know, what, uh particularly the way that you brought up a uh, uh, pearl. You know, you got to, it's. Here's a guy who won the Turing Award on the computer science side, but basically has spent 30 years fighting with academics that <laughs> that causality really is like a thing, right? So, I mean, uh, I couldn't have uh, couldn't have said it better. And the whole pi y thing is super interesting. Um, one quick comment for folks that maybe have never really thought about this stuff and just want a kind of a like an easy entry point. Um, it's not. It's not causality exactly, but um, on Google Analytics, they have this section in their uh, help file on why they do A-B testing with Bayesian instead of A-B testing with uh, p-values. And it's only a couple of pages. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think anybody who's into data could follow that logic. And it really is an example of what Vin was just talking about. You know, because there will literally be questions in the help file. Where are my p values? (laughs) I can't proceed without p values. I'm I'm freaking out. Where are my p values? And it's addressed right in the help file. The reason we don't provide p values is because we're doing this Bayesian. The reason we've decided to do Bayesian is because it's actually answering what your real question is, which is, is my B better than my A used to be? Right. But again, they walk through it very clearly. It can be an entry. Level discussion, I think, for those of you that are intrigued but just haven't gone down down this rabbit hole before,
0: Keith. Thank you very much. um Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to find some time to go through that course, and and we'll we'll talk about this in a in a podcast episode for sure. It might be fun to do maybe Vin and Keith together um, with me asking stupid questions because I feel like uh, the audience could gain a lot from uh, from my stupidity. Um, by the way I, I don't know if i shouted it out already or not but uh i did a episode on my podcast with uh, dana mckenzie who's the co-author of the book of why um so definitely check out that episode it's linked right there in the chat um i think we just called it like the book of why so definitely check that out um dana did offer that i uh to, to introduce me to judea pearl but i was like ah I think I passed up on that. I might have to uh, hit him up and, and see if that offer is still valid after this conversation. with No,
5: the... I, I got to tell you, I've heard a couple of his podcasts. He's an amazing guest. Yeah. And he is not as scary as you think to interview. Yeah. He's he's a great guest.
0: Yeah, I've heard the episode with him and Lex Friedman. And I was like, that was such a good, good episode. Um, yeah, speaking of Lex Friedman, did you know Lex Friedman and I have interviewed two of the same guests? John Vavakey and uh, Jordan Ellenberg. So go listen to those episodes side by side, me versus him. Let me know who you think the better podcaster is. I'm pretty sure it is me. Uh Keith, any final uh, statements or, or anything here?
4: Well, I was thinking you should invite Lex. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've tried multiple times. Actually, actually uh, uh Lex Freeman put out a um a call for um like it was just like a, a you know looking for people to work on his podcast. And so I applied. Uh you know, he said he was looking for research assistance for the podcast. And I was like, all right, well, I researched this shit out of my, my guests. Like I'm amazing at that. And uh, I know how podcasts work and a little, little bit about them. Um, so we'll see if he'll get back to me. Um, one of the things he asked was how much you want per hour. I put like an absurd number for a virtual assistant that does research, but we'll see what happens. But he had this question and the question was, uh, d- do you, do you work hard or do you work smart? And then the follow-up question was explain your answer to the previous question. Uh, and so, so my answer was I work hard and why? Because I'm too dumb to work smart. Um, so I have to work hard. So that's those, that yeah, response there. let's see if he uh, buys that. Uh, any other questions coming in, do let me know. Um, don't say anything on YouTube. Scott Taylor, by the way, was in the YouTube chatting it up. Uh, Scott Taylor, did not forget about you. Uh, hopefully you're doing good, man. It was good hanging out. I hung out with, the, was it earlier this week? Might have been last week. I don't know, man. Weeks just be running together nowadays. Um, but I was hanging out on a call with uh, Scott Taylor, Kate, um, Christina, Ravith, Tom, a bunch of other people. It was a great time. Koso, your hand is up. Go for it, my friend.
7: Yeah, just quickly on the work hard, work smart, I'm too dumb to work uh, smart thing uh the fact that you know you're too dumb to work smart is proof that you're smart enough to realize where you could work smarter right the fact is like i'm i'm in a similar boat where i work hard because i'm not the smartest bloke in the room and i like not being the smartest bloke in the room um if i am that's the wrong room uh but fact of the matter is there's a limit to how much effort overcomes things right because you got to balance effort with or well, balance right and everything else so yeah Work hard, yep. but
0: don't burn yourself out. And Makigo, uh, let's hear from you on this because you put there in the uh, in the chat uh, same. So talk to us about working hard versus working smart. Go for it.
8: This is gonna sound so bad and vaguely hypocritical, but I'm a little bit over hustle culture. So I'm investing in the things that bring me joy, and that is, you know, my meal service, my quilting table. And fabrics knitting and doing content so yeah yeah it's it was funny though because i like it's funny because like when i since i'm like starting the new chapter of my career right i was like looking back at all the different twists and turns that like my career has taken and i remember in high school like most of my teachers were like like i was i was gonna be too dumb to like accomplish anything um I had like a few high school teachers. My most of my high school teachers loved me, but there were ones who were like I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. They were so intent on trying to break the spirit of a high school student and it's so sad that some teachers are like that. Uh, you know, but I think it's just I think also to adaptability. It's something that you, I, you and I her have talked about, right? About playing the long the long game of building a career and a body of work as opposed to playing the short game of like Sometimes it's, like, the short game is trying to get as much money as possible, trying to get as many clients as possible, trying to get as many projects as possible. But the longer game is building the body of work, building the quality relationships, building the quality community, Um, you know, like, marketing yourself at the price you feel you deserve for the value that you bring. And the right people will, like, recognize that, and they will come and, like, be a part of your tribe. So, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I totally get that whole, like... You have to work hard at a certain point, but I'm also a little bit done over the hustle culture of Silicon Valley. So now I want to like work happy.
0: No, I feel you on that 100%. By the way, Makiko has made a career switch into developer relations. One by one, I will be converting everyone you see here to developer relations because that is what I do. I convert people to my side. Um, But dude, yeah, man, like probably the first time ever, I feel like everything is just lined up like everything's lined up, right? Like, like the stuff I was doing for fun on the side is now my actual full-time job. Like, this is what I do for a living. And it is amazing. Like I spend half my week learning computer vision with no stress. Like, I don't got to worry about people asking me like, why the fuck you spend time on computer visions? We need to get this done for this business value and that report and all this, that, and the other. Nobody fucking cares. They're like, yeah, spend like two days a week learning computer vision, do it. And then I host events, I write content, I, you know, Strategize community. I bring people together. Like I'm doing everything that I enjoy doing. The stuff that I would do in my spare time is just not my full time job. Um. Yeah, everything's just like lined up, and it's amazing, right? It's it's amazing.
8: Yeah, Uh, I gotta
7: say, man, that's uh, I love I love hearing that that you're doing exactly what you love doing, and that's huge, right? Because one thing that I've learned in the last few years is uh, a well, it's A not just doing what you love doing and the job that you think you love, because I mean, I've kind of broken mu- at multiple points in, in the last seven or eight years, I've broken down the, hey, this is the job that I'm meant to do, this is the job that I love, uh, breaking through those preconceived notions of, oh, I, I need to go do a PhD from MIT from a top tier you know tech school to you know breaking through all of those barriers of saying these are preconceived notions and not necessarily in line with my uh, my prop- my true nature right So getting into those jobs where you're doing that that's powerful man and I love hearing that that's the space you're in right now. Um, and the other half is the Devrel in, in general, the fact that we have a formalized role for something like this within the ecosystem of, of tech, just shows that maturity of we're bringing forward the human element of tech development um which for the largest part in the last 40 50 years it's just not been around so really yeah. good to hear it mate
0: yeah and to that point about just this like like you're talking about oh i've got to do this i'm supposed to do this I'm supposed to do that and the other like i feel like a lot like you know people like online do this too like justin welsh for example like posting a picture of his calendar with no meetings, no appointments saying, oh, goals. Like, like, all right, cool, man. Like, so what you're you're making your money teaching people how to make their money online so that they can then teach other people how to make like I don't want any part of that anymore. Like I thought I wanted to be a part of that or do something close to that just because all the everyone says I should be doing that. That's what I should be doing. But really like that is not what freedom really is. I think I posted about this the other day, right? And I said freedom isn't freedom isn't having you know, an empty calendar and just complete idleness. That's not what freedom is, man. It's having the, the time and space to think about and work about the problems that you actually want to solve. Like these are things that I want to be doing. And I'm getting paid for it. Like yeah, dude. Like I made it in life. Right.
8: That was like, the thing that to me was like really surprising when I uh transitioned into data science and then and then hopped my way over to like engineering was I thought I would be doing a lot more learning, building, and sharing. And it ended up not being that. A lot of times it ended up being like fighting with legacy code, sometimes fighting with legacy culture, and a lot of times like spinning the wheel on, on just really kind of minute things like, I don't know, like how initiatives are named or or whatever. And I ended up taking on more of like, like, because like, in my head, like DevRel is basically like you are helping like developers or, or folks or data scientists use your tools and you're helping to make the tool like the product or service like better. And you're trying to make people's lives better. And I kind of th- sort of thought that was what engineering was, but um, especially like platform engineering. But I, I realized maybe that was a little bit of a naive notion um that mm-hmm. might be like the aspirational intent but i also think too i don't know yeah I don't know. It, it was just yeah. it, it was weird you know it's it's weird that like i had to kind of switch to like a non-engineering title to finally do the work i i thought i was going to be doing like as an engineer so
0: yeah i, I mean th- there's there's still a dark side Deborah. we will still gonna have to deal with the same kind of stuff from executives and, and people like that um but it's just so much more fun the work itself is so, it brings me so much joy. It's so fun. Uh, Keith, do uh, you got anything to add here? I'd love to hear from you.
4: Uh, well, the only, uh, I keep on thinking about something Makiko said a couple of minutes ago about the whole uh, high school teacher thing. I'm curious uh how many of us had at least one high school teacher that thought we wouldn't amount to anything. For me, it's kind of like a badge of honor. I kind of get inspired by that kind of thing.
0: All of them. All of my high school teachers that I, I was, I was, I was in nothing but honors classes in high school, but I was like the bottom 2% because I kept skipping school to like, you know, go do drugs, um, but I'd show up and I'd take the exam and, you know, do decent on the exam. But uh, there's one teacher in particular, uh, he was my chemistry teacher, AP chemistry teacher, I think this was 10th grade, 9th uh, grade, maybe ninth or 10th grade. And I was an active student participating in class, like, you know, asking questions, like, you know, just asking questions that I was just curious about. Um, and he just went off the rails on me one day. He was like, you sitting here acting like, you know, all these things or like that you're smart, but you know what? Wait till you see your next, next exam, the score you got. I'm just sitting there like, what the fuck <laughs> is that blowing up on me, man? Uh, but he, yeah, he, he genuinely, uh, like at, killed my love of science for a very long time. That uh, was horrible uh because let's hear from you
7: i mean teaching is hard man teaching is a tough tough gig i just want us to like step back and appreciate that for a second right yeah like having taught at a university and having uh you know tutored a bunch of different students who all learn differently uh for like high school students um it is a tough gig and Whatever else we may say, we may rip on them now because we're like, hey, heads on a pole, every teacher that told me I wouldn't amount to shit, right? Um, yeah, just step back and appreciate, right? Like, it's a tough gig. And dealing with students that just think differently, that just approach things differently, the people on this podcast, let's be honest, guys, uh, and, and this isn't that we think better or worse, it's just that we think differently, right? People from who have that love for data, who have that love for we have we have an inherent love for chaos, for organising chaos, and for looking into this abyss of things that don't make sense and trying to make sense of it. Whereas most, a lot of other people prefer structure and prefer, okay, this is an organised way of working and we follow those, uh, you know, those rules and protocols that's already established. A lot of us love to dive in and fix the mess. I mean, sure, Nikiko, you might. I mean, I don't know your take is on it from the MLOps standpoint. It feels a lot more solid and probably a lot less chaotic than some of the experimental work out there but in reality it's fully chaotic and you're just trying to you're you're exactly like i can see you shaking your head you're digging your hands into this mud that everyone says is oh that's just engineering right and you're like no this is mud and we're trying to build structures with mud here we're trying to build brick houses with mud so there's this love for chaos right the, the point i'm trying to make is all of us here i think we can establish that we have this inherent love for chaos And teachers struggle to deal with that because it's so hard to teach a class of 30 kids as one person who's had barely any support, barely any mentoring. We expect young teachers straight out of universities to teach at this extremely high level, uh, you know, and they're getting paid jack shit. Let's be frank, right? They're getting paid, you know, barely anything compared to what they should be getting paid. And fundamentally, right? What I found was two kinds of responses for most teachers. One that would essentially turn around and say, hey, you're smart, but you're lazy. Just do the work, right? The others that would just be like, yeah, he's, he's lazy. He's not very good at this. He's just going to drop the ball, so I'm not going to bother, right? Let him, let him drag his feet long through the class. Um, and the latter killed my love for science. I ended up hating biology and chemistry, The only thing that kept me going was, like, electronics. And I was always kind of obsessed with robots and aircraft. So I kind of loved that side anyway. So that love kind of overcame the boredom of science, right? Um, But on the flip side, you have those teachers that I I, I can remember maybe three or four teachers that they chose to, you know, throw their hands into the mud and try to figure out how do we teach this chaotic kid? Right. Um, and they all had different approaches and it was fantastic. I, I hated, I was good at English, but I hated English like lit. Um, and uh, I had one teacher that realized, Hey, this guy doesn't get, care about literature techniques. He cares about philosophy, right? So he, he managed to tailor every single lesson in the 11th grade and in the 12th grade into a tweak of Right. He'd talk about the structural lesson that he's supposed to teach. And then he'd dive into like Jungian psychology or something like that, just to throw in enough there for the two or three of us that were super chaotic in the class and wanted that additional input. And then you had like people that would just challenge you. I, I didn't like being told, hey, I, I still don't. All right, this is the thing we do. This is how we do it. Just follow the protocol. I'm, I'm a high ID personality. If you've ever done disk analysis, right? I'm a high ID personality. Right, so very, very low compliance, like eight out of a hundred kind of thing, right? You don't want me as your QC engineer. Um, Fact is we had uh, teachers that would challenge us in those ways. There was one teacher that literally, uh, like he would limit me to three questions per lesson, right? We all know that I can talk for days, like I'm doing right now, but it was like limit to three questions per day, right? And that made me have to think hard, hey what am I going to ask him what can I answer for myself with the knowledge that I already have while still keeping up with the conversation because a lot of the time when I'm asking him a question it's not exactly about this it's because he's given me a seed of information that I've gone off to think about something else it gives me that habit of writing that down and exploring that separately and coming back to that teaching me was tough right and then I liked that competitive nature of it I'm a little bit competitive at times um mm-hmm. He did this thing, and uh, I'm not going to name names of which subject because everyone figured that out, but he did this thing where there were like eight or nine of us in the class. He'd basically write down, and and we were all competitive, like we were all that kind of competitive nature, and we enjoyed it, which is why it was okay to do, but in a lot of classes, maybe not, right? He put, uh, after every exam or, or assignment or assessment, he'd basically go, he'd put all the scores in the class, right, on the whiteboard. They just put the scores down, but not our names, right? Um, starting at the top, going right down to the bottom, right? Um, and then he would ask each of us to come up and put our initials next to the score we thought we got, right? And it's brutal because everyone in the class knows what you think you got and what you actually got. But it's a great way to teach us to recalibrate our thinking of where am I actually from an understanding perspective. And that was something that was so invaluable to me as a competitive person, as a person who needs to battle ego and humility all the time, um, one of the best lessons I've ever had, and he understood that that particular class of thinkers operate in that way, and and enjoy having that feedback to them. Um, those are some of the best teachers I had. Were the ones that dug their hands into it, and it's very hard to find it. So you got to appreciate, right? Yeah, sure. Heads on a pole. There's a lot of teachers that <laughs> that said I wouldn't amount to anything, but hey. Um, all you need is those two or three that push you
0: through, right? So, yeah, dude, I was actually a high school teacher for for two years. Uh, this was,
7: and you'd be a great high school teacher.
0: Yeah, I taught I taught math, and like I kind of just did it because, like, for whatever reason, I had like I had no other options. So I became a teacher, and so I was a teacher for two years. But I was teaching at uh, this in California. We have something called academic recovery, and there's a uh, uh, kind of a, a segment of schools or, uh, that's called Options for Youth. Uh, opportunities for learning, options for youth, whatever. There was one of those. Uh, they're both one company, and I taught there for two years at Options for Youth, uh, teaching the kids that were kicked out of high school, just fresh out of juvie, or for whatever reason were on academic recovery. And at the same time, though, in the same school, uh, and and by school, the schools were interesting. It was just you imagine a strip mall and like just a little like place inside the strip mall. This is what the school was. This is where I show up to work to teach kids math. Um, but yeah, in my same class, I have kids that are trying to catch up, but then kids that were on the other end of the spectrum that are trying to get ahead and get faster because those are your options. Like, let's say you wanted to finish high school quick, you got opportunities for learning options for youth, and you just take your units. Everything was unit-based. You have a packet, you do your questions, you turn it in, you get your credit. A very interesting model. Um, but yeah, dude, I was dealing with some, I was dealing with kids that are just like me, man. Like, you know, like... Uh, most Indian people you see uh, in data science come from very cushy and plush backgrounds and they're all good kids and they all lived in nice neighborhoods with rich parents. That was not me. I grew up broke as fuck in the hood and, um, you know, dealt with struggles that a kid would grow, deal, deal with in, in that environment. And I could just relate to them. I think that's what made me a good teacher. Uh, I don't know if I was a good teacher or not, but that's what made me, made me an impactful teacher being able to help, kids just, i just understood them i got them because i was them um but because of that teaching because of doing that little bit of math teaching i was teaching high school level math and that's when i was like holy shit dude i'm actually like <laughs> i like pretty good at this and i really enjoy it and so that's when i decided to go back to grad school and study math uh you know in, in graduate school and pursue a career in actuarial sciences and, and wouldn't have had that if i didn't take a pit stop teaching teach math great discussion y'all. uh man i don't see any questions coming on linkedin don't see any questions coming on youtube i think it's a good time to wrap it up man uh, as usual good discussion i'm excited that y'all were here good to see a lot of uh a lot of old friends a lot of new faces hope you new faces swing by uh those of you watching on linkedin you know we had some good views on linkedin hopefully you guys enjoyed it do let me know smash that like uh let me know what's going on um I don't got any announcements on anything, man. Just uh, just have a good weekend, chill out, enjoy. I'll see you all next time. Um, Russell's got some good comments here as well. Russell's saying empathy is one of the strongest skills to be able to connect with people. Uh, Russell's saying that uh, where I was challenging as a child was also often using the ITTT mapping. Well, talk to him about that real quick, Russell. I haven't heard from you at all, man. So let's hear from Russell, then we'll, then we'll wrap it up. In uh, the meantime, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for questions and comments in the chat.
10: Okay, thanks, Alprey. Yeah, so, so I, Triple T, uh, if this, then that. A lot of people in the data community will be familiar with that philosophy. And as a child, I was fascinated to learn anything that I could learn. You know, I had a great appetite for learning. So if a teacher presented something that was really interesting, I would normally go to them with additional questions and say, oh, so that's very interesting if that means that then by association does something else that's connected to it mean this then and i'd want to explore the further boundaries of the very fixed lessons that was on the the lesson plans that they had uh, usually to the frustration of the teachers uh, and ultimately that did result in me being asked to sit in the corner to stop bothering the teachers uh some teachers as you mentioned uh you know you get good teachers some teachers are very good and uh tolerated me very well and i responded quite well in those but in in others uh they got used to me and uh, i used to be asked to sit in the corner quite a lot in some of those so uh yes i i think it depends very much in the institutions and facilities you achieve your education as to your your feelings about those and uh how they can how they can optimize your ability for learning. So I I don't think I optimized my ability as a young child. I think I could have learned more faster, but I'm sure that happens to many, many people. So I don't class myself as unique in that respect.
0: Russell, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you all for hanging out. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. It's been a good, good evening with y'all or morning, depending on what side of the world you're at or late in the evening, night. Uh, Thank you all for being here. Remember, my friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do some big cheers, everyone?